0: I'm happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Can you say, "Amen"? amen. Good to see you today. Happy Thanksgiving to you. You excited about the Thanksgiving holiday? I know I am, but not because I'm going to lose control of my eating. Amen. You know, the Lord spoke to me in Korea. I was praying in Korea, and I said, "God, I really wish I could lose some weight. I really wish." And I prayed this prayer, Lord, I wish I could be 175 pounds. Would you help me with that? Would you please help me with that? And the Lord said, Benjamin, you're exactly the weight that you want to be. I said, no, Lord, I really want to be 175 pounds. He said, Benjamin, nobody put a a gun to your head and said, eat these cookies. And drink this soda. You are exactly the weight you want to be. You want to be 224 pounds. That's what you want. That's your desire. Now, if you want to be 175 pounds, you have the power to be that weight. I've given you the power to be whatever weight you want to be. So simply make a decision and do it. Sometimes we're praying over things that God has put under our authority. Instead of just making a decision, the Lord said, son, you're not so powerless. Powerless. As if food just overtook you and, you know, wrestled you to the floor and stuffed itself in your mouth and grabbed your jaws and put them together and made you swallow. You're not so powerless. You have power over food. Food does not have power over you. I told you to take dominion over the earth, not to let the animal kingdom take dominion over you. Not like chickens just climbed up and just jumped in your mouth and held you down and, you know. You got plants and animals taking authority over you son rise up and take dominion I said oh okay oh thank you you know sometimes the Lord will set you straight because we'll be fasting and praying over stuff that's in our power to do <laughs> come on somebody so I have lost 13 pounds I have taken dominion and I'm not fasting because y'all always see me lose weight when I'm fasting. That's typically what I do, right? I go on a fast. I lose about 30 or 40 pounds. And then when that fast is over, Lord have mercy. I'm eating with two forks and I tend to fast right before Thanksgiving because I'm thinking I'm going to get my grub on. And God told me no more weight loss fasts, no more fat, no more fasting when you're fat. Come on, somebody. So anyway, I just want to encourage you that you have a lot more authority than you think you have. And, and so much of what we call dependency is actually a relinquishing of our God-giving authority. We think God wants us to depend on him for everything. But there are things that he's put under our authority, and he expects us to exercise that authority and to take dominion instead of simply waiting around for him to do something. Hey, man, that's not what I'm talking about this morning. But I just thought I would throw that in there for free. Up, oh, that's going to be on the next skit. Watch. <laughs> All right, we're in a series called The Meaning of Fellowship, The True Meaning of Fellowship. I started last Sunday morning with part one, and today we're going to continue that series with part two, The True Meaning of Fellowship. And uh, today's message, part two, is, the, is uh, called Three Primary Components of Our Fellowship three primary components of our fellowship. Over the last couple of weeks, my wife was gone to Mexico and uh, I had extra time when I was home. And And um, somebody prophesied over me that God was taking me into a deeper place of intimacy and that I was going to begin to be lost in a place of fellowship with God, uh, much the way my spiritual father in, in, in experiences his fellowship with God. And that really began to happen over the last couple of weeks. I began to have you know, days of fellowship with God. And nights, just in deep fellowship with God. And what I continued to hear the spirit of God cry out for was fellowship, that the spirit of God is crying out to build fellowship in the house of God, that we would have fellowship with him, that we would really understand what it means to have fellowship with him. And that we would have fellowship with one another, that we would really understand what it means to have fellowship with one another without fellowship. We're simply an organization, but God has created us to be an organism. Without fellowship, we're a corporation or a company. But God has created us to be a people. And so it's it's we are not a special interest group, but we are the people of the living God. And God wants to draw us into fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would grant wisdom and understanding as we come before the pages of your word. That you would speak to us by your Spirit. And I thank you, God, that every time we gather, you speak to us. And every time you speak to us, we're changed. And every time we're changed, we walk away knowing that we'll never be the same again. We give you all of the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'd like to start with a recap from last week. Last week, just a quick recap. Last week, we said that fellowship is three things. Number one, partaking, which is receiving. Number two, providing, which is giving. And number three, participating, which is communing. And these are the three primary senses of the term koinonia as it is used throughout the New Testament. I created a document in which I analyzed each, I identified each of the passages in the New Testament where the word koinonia is used in any of its forms. And it's a Google Doc that I shared and put on the Facebook wall of Living Hope Christian Center if you're interested in seeing it. Uh, But these are the three primary senses of the term koinonia, the word fellowship, as it appears in the New Testament. It's first and foremost partaking, that is receiving. Secondly, it's providing, that is giving. And third, it's participating, that is communing. And when we come to the third sense, participating or communing, we're talking about joint ownership. We're talking about a shared experience. First of all, it's an experience that we share in the sense that we both are experiencing it independently of one another. And then secondly, it's a shared experience in the sense that we're both sharing it with one another. And I was thinking about a metaphor for understanding what real spiritual fellowship looks like. A metaphor for understanding it is if you and I both went to an Italian restaurant and you ordered the fettuccine Alfredo and I ordered the Balinese spaghetti. You and I are eating two different meals, but they were prepared by the same chef. They came from the same kitchen. And so it's it's really two different meals, but it's a family of meals. And so I can actually eat from your plate. You can take some from your plate and put it on mine, and I can take some from my plate and put it on yours, and they're not going to clash with each other. They're going to compliment one another. That is, we're both eating something that came from the same chef. It's It's not out of left field like... If I was eating pho, you know what pho is, right? That Vietnamese soup. And you were eating a hamburger. You know, you want some of my pho? Here, take some of my hamburger. If you're eating pho, you're, I don't want a hamburger. And if you're eating a hamburger, I don't want no pho. Like it's it's from two. And so when we're not eating a meal that's served by the same chef, then we can't really fellowship in that meal. It's two different things. But we have fellowship. When we're sitting at the table and each of us has something slightly different. And I love going to a restaurant with four or five or six or seven different people and we all order something different. And I love a la carte, you know, especially those Chinese restaurants with the big spin wheel, you know, put all the plates on and just turn it and get a little, turn it and get a little, turn it and get a little. little. All of these many different, many different uh, actual entrees come together to make one meal on the plate. And so when we talk about our fellowship in the body of Christ, we need the entree that you bring to the table. It might be different from the entree that the person next to you brings to the table, but we're going to make sure that it was prepared by the same chef in the same kitchen at the same restaurant. And so even if it's different, it's going to contribute to the whole of our fellowship. Uh, now last week we specifically focused on the financial part, the, the role that financial partnership plays in establishing fellowship in the local church. Uh, this week, I have three basic texts that I want to uh, present to you. First of all, uh, today's text, first of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Remember, we're looking at the three primary components that comprise our fellowship today. And 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. i memorized it. The, the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, when I was in the eighth grade, and I knew it in the King James Version. It says, And now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, the Scripture says, We continue to remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ faith, hope, and love, these three components continue to spring to the surface. We see again in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. This morning's message is about faith, hope, and And love this morning's message is more fundamental to the structure of fellowship itself than last week's message. Fellowship is comprised of three components, faith, hope, and love. Without faith, we have no fellowship. Without hope, we have no fellowship. And without love, we have no fellowship. I want to help us see that this morning. And understand how these three components come together to comprise our fellowship. And I want to start with faith. What is faith? What is faith? And what is the difference between faith and hope? And how do they relate to love? And how do those three come together to form our fellowship? First of all, faith is always oriented towards the present. I'm going to say that. This is an important point. Faith is always oriented towards the present. It is not based upon our expectations for the future. It is our confidence in the character of the present. Faith is about what is now, not about what is tomorrow, not about what is coming. It is not about what you expect God to do in your life. It's about what God has done. Faith is about the now, not about tomorrow. It is about the now. And the reason that that is so important for us is because our faith is supposed to make us steadfast and unmovable. Our faith is supposed to ground us, but if it's always based upon something that's coming but is not now, then it's going to move. What happens when you expect something to happen but it doesn't happen? What happens when you're believing for something and it doesn't come? What happens when disappointment comes? If your faith is, is grounded in what is coming, then your faith is going to be shaken when that thing doesn't come. And so faith is a present reality, not a future expectation. It is about now. What do you believe is real right now? What do you believe God has done right now? And what is its significance for your life right now? That is where your faith is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, the scripture says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith. You got to be able to stand firm in the faith. My faith is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and righteousness. And here's the thing that we need to understand about faith. Faith is not dependent upon the changing of my circumstances. Amen. Faith is not simply the means by which I change the realities of my life. Faith is the means by which I understand that the realities of the kingdom of heaven take precedence over the realities of my life. Right. Faith is the process by which I lay hold of the primary reality. <laughs> <laughs> Write that down and ask the Lord for an interpretation. <laughs> Faith is the process by which I lay hold of the primary reality of God's sovereignty and then subordinate the secondary reality of my situation to it. Can I say that again? Faith is the process by which I lay hold of the primary reality of God's sovereignty and then subordinate the secondary reality of my situation to it. It means simply that just because I'm having a bad day doesn't mean God's having a bad day. It means simply that I believe that God is still on the throne even if it seems that I'm in the pit. Because what we tend to do is take our bad days and project them upon God. God, what are we going to do? And God's going, well, I know what I did. I don't know what you're going to do, but I know what I did. Now, if you can come into the place in which you're more secure in what I did than in what you're going to do. Now you're beginning to understand what faith is. However, faith is connected to future realities. It's not unrelated to what you're hoping for, but it is not the same. As expectation for future things. We see this in Mark chapter 11 verse 24. Get this. Jesus says. Whatever things you ask for. When you pray. I know it in the NKJV. The King James Version. This is NIV. But in the New King James Version. It says. Whatsoever things you ask for. When you pray. Believe that you have received them. Present. Not future. Not believe that you will receive them. Believe that you have received them and you shall have them, the NIV says, and they will be yours. Do you see the difference? Believe that you have them now, and they will be yours then. Doesn't that sound like a contradiction? Doesn't that sound like denial? I got it. Well, where is it? It's coming. But you just said you got it. I do. Then where is it? It's coming. I don't have it yet, but I got it. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. When I have faith, I've got the substance of it right now. Even though I'm still hoping for it. I'm looking for it to come. But that's not what my faith is not based in the time frame of of its coming. By faith, I am firm and secure right now. I just believe. I believe. The thing we need to understand about faith is, Is that faith is far more interested in believing in God than believing for things. We gotta get that. My faith is not in the changing of my circumstances, it's in Jesus Christ. It's in the fact that He already died on the cross for my sins. That he already arose from the grave on the third day. That he already ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. That's where my faith is. My faith is in what God has already done. By faith, I recognize that what I am longing for, God has already provided. He's already moved. And so often, see, without faith, what we're doing is we're going, Oh, God, move! Oh, God, do it. Oh, God, change this. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, this. But by faith, I say, God is my, my refuge and my strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, I will not be moved. That's what faith says. You've already moved. Are you with me this morning? Yes, now, hope is somewhat different. While faith is grounded in present realities, hope is always future oriented. It's not about what is now, but about what is to come. Hope is about what's coming. Faith is about what's now. Hope is about what's coming. Faith is in what I have today. Hope is in what I'm going to have tomorrow. Hope is confident expectation in what God is about to do. Now, I have to say about faith, about hope that our popular cultural definition of hope is not biblical. Because hope in our culture is something that's probably not going to (laughs) happen. Right? When we say, I hope, what we're most of the time saying is probably not. But there's a slim chance. And so I'm hoping, here young people say, well, I hope she likes me. Yeah, she doesn't. When he says, I hope she likes me, she don't. (laughs) I hope I get the job. Yeah, you probably won't. It's hope in our culture is like a half court shot. You know, you just close your, close your eyes and throw the ball at the basket. I hope it goes in. I hope. But hope in the new Testament is not a maybe hope in the new Testament is something that's certainly coming. Something that's certainly about to happen. Hope in the new Testament is like standing at the bus stop and looking at the schedule and seeing it's it's 4:15 right now. It says the bus is coming at 4:29. I got 14 minutes, and it, that 14 minutes is comprised of hope, which is confident expectation that that bus is about to come. About to come, it's coming. Why? It's on schedule. The schedule says it's coming at at 4:29. It's 4:15. I got 14 minutes of hope, and then when it doesn't come right at 4:29, you don't lose all hope. You don't go, oh, no, I've stood here for 14 minutes for nothing. The bus isn't coming. Oh, that's just great. You don't start freaking out. You go, it must be a couple minutes late, but it's still coming. I expected it to come at 429, but just because it didn't come right at the moment I expected it doesn't mean it's not coming. It just means I got to stand here for a few more minutes, but it's coming. It is certainly coming. It's absolutely coming. You see? And so the only difference between hoping in God and hoping in the bus is that God doesn't give you his his schedule. He doesn't tell you what time it's coming. (laughs) You ever felt that way? Lord, can you just tell me when so I can stop fooling around with this hope thing? Try Abraham. You're going to have a son. Yay. Come on, Sarah. A year goes by. The Lord comes back. You're going to have a son. Yay. Come on, Sarah. Ten years goes by. And finally, Sarah says, let's try this another way. Here goes Hagar. You know what just happened? She gave up her hope. That is, she lost her confident expectation. And here's the key. Abraham and Sarah, when they turned to the Hagar situation, they didn't lose their faith. They still believe God's going to do this but they lost their hope, but he's not going to do it the way he said he was. So we're going to have to find an alternate means of bringing about the promise, but God's going to do it. And they did it their way and thought, this is it. This is what God wanted. And so just as faith without works is dead, faith without hope is dead. We need not only faith that God is able and that God is willing and that God is present, but we also need hope and he's going to do it in his time. I don't know his calendar. I don't know his schedule. And the problem is when we start putting our faith in calendar events instead of in God's sovereignty. My faith says God's going to do it, but my hope says, now let's hold on until he does. We're going to stand here and wait until he does, but he will certainly do it. Romans chapter 8, verse 24 through 25. The scripture says, for in this hope, We were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? Nobody hopes, right? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Okay? I'm building a foundation here. This all relates to fellowship, I promise. So faith and hope work together. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things unseen. Faith is the substance of it that I possess right now, but I'm still hoping for it, which means I'm going to possess it. By hope, I know I don't have it yet, but I'm going to have it. By faith, I know I've already got it in the spirit. I've already got it by faith. Look at Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. This is a very important passage. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. He didn't just believe, he believed in hope. That is, his believing was a hopeful believing. Not that he placed his faith in his hope. But that his believing was a hopeful believing. He, and see, there's the thing. You can believe without hope. Meaning, I know God can heal, but I don't expect him to heal anything. I know God can provide, but I don't expect him to provide for me. I think I'm going to be broke for the rest of my life. I know God can fix my marriage, but we're probably going to get a divorce. I got faith, but no hope, no expectation that God is going to actually do something. And you know what? The devil doesn't care if you have faith with no hope. If you don't have any hope, the devil is he, you can believe you can stand on your Bible. You can declare and confess, but if you don't have any expectation that God's going to do anything, Satan is not bothered by your faith at all. He says against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. And here's the key without weakening in his faith. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. We tend to do one or the other. He faced the fact without weakening in his faith. We tend to stay strong in faith, but we're not going to face the fact. I don't want to look at it. Right. I don't even want to look at it. Yes. I don't even want to look. I don't. No. Baby, we need to look at the finances. No, I don't want to look at it. I just believe God's going to provide. Right. No, God's going to do something. God's going to. Oh, no, but we got to crunch the numbers here and figure out how we're going to. Make. No, 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 no. Right. No, somehow God's going to provide. Just don't look at it. See, the best way to walk in faith is just don't look at it. Right. You go to the doctor. Doctor says you need to lose some weight or else your blood pressure is going out. No, no, no. I don't want to hear it. I, I, I renounce that in Jesus name. I don't receive that I don't receive that report. That doctor don't know nothing. I'm not taking this medication anymore. Flush your medication in the toilet. No, you got to face the fact. The doctor has a report right in front of him. It's real. Okay. He did some tests on you. And this is what he came up with. Going into denial and refusing to face the fact is not faith. It's foolishness. But then... What we do is well, we face the fact. Okay, let's look at the bills. Oh, Lord. Oh, what are we going to do? Oh, my God. We got more bills and we don't have any money. Oh, my God. Now we crushed. We got negative $25. Oh, Lord, we're not going to make it. Now we face the fact, but we weakened in our faith. I sit and look at the doctors. Work. Oh, Lord, I'm so sick. Look at all these sicknesses. Oh, my God, I'm going to die an early death. I'm going to lose my daughter. It's going to lose her father, and I'm going to leave my wife as a widow. Oh, Lord. I face the fact, but I weakened in my faith. Or I stayed strong in my faith, but I refused to face the fact. Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Seeing that he was almost 100 years old. He was 99 years old. He faced the fact there's no way in the natural. I'm having a kid. I mean, this just ain't no. My grandmother died at a hundred. My great great aunt. She died at 100 years old a few months ago. A hundred And if she would have came up talking about the Lord told me I'm going to have a kid, we would have laid hands on her. We said, that's the the dementia is talking. That's not the Lord. Abraham at 99 years old said it's impossible, but God said it will be. I'm facing the fact that my body is as good as dead. And Sarah's womb was also dead. Why? She was 79 years old. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he believed that God was able to do what he had promised. What was his faith? His faith was not he believed that God would do it within six months. His faith was God will do what he has promised. His hope was, and he'll do it in his time. You hearing me? Now, how does this relate to fellowship? We've understood faith and hope. How do faith and hope relate to our fellowship? Well, applied to fellowship, faith is the act of believing that God has made us one. You now, when we're talking about being the church, what the church is, is a fellowship. Fellowship is who we are. It's not just what we do. It's who we are. It is the essence of what the church is. If we are not a fellowship, we are not the church of Jesus Christ. But when we're talking about being a fellowship, we're not talking about what we have created by our human interactions. True spiritual fellowship is not created because we like each other, it's not created through our relational skills. The world probably does that better than us in some senses. Our, our oneness is not created by the compatibility of our personalities. You know, when I go to a church, when, when we go to a church, we typically look for things that we like. Okay, first of all, look around. How are the people dressed? Is this the way I like to dress when I come to church? Second of all, what's the music like? Is this the kind of music I like at a church? Third, third of all, how do the people talk to each other? What are the kind of personality types of the people? What are the people interested in? What sports teams do the people like? Do I like, will I fit in well here? You know, what are the ages of the people? You know, will I fit in well here? What are the, what's the style of, of clothing? That, you know, is this a hipster church? No, I, I, don't, I don't like hipsters. You know, uh-uh, no, no, I'm not into, I'm not into that. Uh, some of these people here don't know how to dress. I need to find a more stylish church. We're looking at all of these things in the natural, and we're thinking, I won't fit in here. I better find another church where I fit in as if our fellowship is created by the compatibility of our personalities and the alignment of our interests. Well, what are the political views of this church? Is it a Republican church or a Democrat church? Before I join this this church, I just want to know, did you vote for Obama or Mitt Romney? (laughs) Somebody asked Brother Kent, what do you think about the election? He said, I was blessed when Bush Sr. was in office. I was blessed when Clinton was in office. I was blessed when Reagan was in office. I was blessed when Bush Jr. was in office. And whoever is in office, I'm going to be blessed. That's what I think about this election. <laughs> I said, I like that. Our oneness is not created by the compatibility of our personalities or the alignment of our interests. And our oneness is not dependent upon our ability to resolve our conflicts. I'm going to say that. Our oneness is not dependent upon our ability to resolve our conflicts. Because whenever you have relational strain between you and any other member of the body, we start to fear. We start to feel anxiety. Please turn that off. But we need to understand that our oneness is not created by our interactions with one another. Our oneness is created by the spirit of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. That is, it is God who makes us one. We do not make ourselves one. you got to hear me on this. This is an important thing, and it applies to marriage. You know, the thing we need to understand about marriage, it's been taught for so long in the body of Christ that once you get married, now you have to go through the arduous task of becoming one. And it's a lifelong endeavor. you got to become one. No. The moment you come to that altar... And the preacher says, I now pronounce you man and wife. You are now one. You were made one by the power of God. It is not simply a ceremony that you went through. God sovereignly took two people through covenant and made you one. So when you go through struggles relationally in which you feel like you're divided, you have to stop and declare, no, we are one. I know it doesn't feel like we're one right now. I know it doesn't look like we're one right now, but we are one. My wife shared at the marriage seminar yesterday about how she and I went through these struggles. And I would go to Pastor Daniels and say, we're so divided. And he'd say, who told you you were divided? Jesus said, what God has put together, let not man separate. If God puts you together, how can you be divided? Are you stronger than God? You need to go into your prayer closet and pray, Lord, I thank you that we're one. And pray it until you begin to believe it. And I started doing that. My wife used to say, my wife told me later, she said, I would sit out there hearing you praying, Lord, thank you that we're one. And I would think, no, we're not. (laughs) This man is in denial. That's not going to help anything. But she said, after a while, I found myself in the car driving after an argument. Not that she drove off, sped off in anger. No, she was on the way somewhere. But she... (laughs) She said, I found myself in the car angry at you, and I find my heart saying, Lord, thank you that we are one. And she said, what am I doing? I don't believe that. She said, I just found myself saying, Lord, we are one. I thank you that we are one. I th- and she said, I need to submit to this because the Spirit of the Lord is doing this in my heart. You know what? Believing that God has made us one, that is the foundation of our oneness. And it's the same thing in the body of Christ. We are one because Jesus Christ made us one, because the Holy Spirit made us one, because he drew us into the fellowship of the Father and of his Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then drew us into fellowship with one another. Actually, I can't divide myself from you because we're going to be in heaven together for a long time. So I better get used to hanging out with you right now. (laughs) And that's why in Ephesians chapter four, verse three, the scripture says that we should strive to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, this is interesting to me. The scripture says, strive, don't get ahead of me back there. The scripture says, strive in, in Ephesians 4, 3, strive to maintain. Isn't striving bad? No, I mean, striving, that's so fleshly. The scripture says that the disciples were out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of the storm, and they were striving at the oars. And Jesus came walking to them in the third watch of the night. They were only in the middle of the lake. Now, that little lake, I've crossed it by boat before. It takes about 45 minutes. The third watch of the night means they had been out there for about nine hours, striving at the oars, and they had gotten a few inches. And it said Jesus intended to pass them by. When he sees us striving at the oars, he says, well, I guess you don't need me. Looks like you got it over there. I'll see you. But they pleaded with him to come into the boat. He goes, oh, you want? Okay. And he jumped in the boat, and the wind and the waves died down, and it said immediately they were at the other side. We can strive and strive and strive to do stuff that God can shift in a moment. But it says here to strive to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's two words that help us understand the meaning of this passage. First, the word maintain. It doesn't say strive to create. All we're doing is maintaining what God has created. Just as God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he put them there to maintain it. God planted the garden. He just wanted Adam and Eve to maintain it. The new creation is God's doing, but tending it is our responsibility. God gives you something and says, now just maintain this. But we have to strive to maintain it, which means that there's labor involved in it. And then the last word is the bond of peace. We're striving to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, meaning that what we're really striving to do is keep the peace. The scripture says, be at peace with all people, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Right? So what we're pursuing, what we're actually striving to do striving sounds like it's chaotic, but actually what we're doing is we're striving to remain at peace to maintain the peace that God gives us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we need to understand that it's God that makes us one, and number two, it's God that keeps us one. When there's a breakdown in our oneness, we attack it with both faith and hope. When there's a breakdown in our oneness, that is the experience of our oneness, not the actuality of our oneness. In actuality, we're one. And the proof of it is when Jesus Christ comes, even, I mean, you and I could be in the middle of a big argument and Jesus comes, all of a sudden we both are caught up in the clouds to meet him in the air. And we're like, oh, hallelujah. (laughs) You know what I mean? At that moment, we're in the air with the Lord. I love you, brother. We were never divided, actually. Because we're going to be with the Lord forever. Whether you agree with me or disagree, we're going to be together forever. Right? So when there's a breakdown in the experience of our oneness, we attack it with both faith and hope. Faith firmly believes that God has made us one, regardless of our differences. And hope actually expects God to restore the experience of our oneness. By faith, I believe God's made us one. By hope, I expect God to work it out. Do you have that expectation when you go through conflict? When you experience conflict with people, do you just in the back of your mind thinking, the Lord's going to work this out? Sometimes It's real hard. In marriage, sometimes you have conflict with your spouse And you start thinking, we'll never get through this. You can't let your mind go there. No matter how deep the conflict, you need to be saying in your mind, God's going to work this out. God's going to work this out. God's going to work this out. We attack it with faith and hope. Anxiety about our divisions is rooted in the belief that oneness is something that we must create and maintain by our own power. When we're anxious about our divisions, it's because we just believe, this is my responsibility. I have to make us one and keep us one. Faith and hope say, no, God made us one, and God is going to keep us one. Okay? All right, now let's go on to love. I'm going to try to wrap this up real soon. Love and fellowship. Faith and hope form the foundation of love. While faith believes that God has made us one, and hope expects God to resolve our differences and keep us one, love is our partnership with God in the work of creating and maintaining oneness. That is, love is our way of entering into fellowship with God and partnering with him in the work of establishing and maintaining our oneness. Love is our communion with God's creative work of oneness. We come into communion with God's creative work of oneness. But there is no love without faith and hope. Love is not just about being nice. You think of love is not just niceness. The foundation of love is faith and hope. If I don't have faith that God has made us one and I don't have hope that God's going to keep us one, I can't love you. It's about believing in what God has done, hoping in what he's about to do and acting accordingly. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, love is patient and kind. And those two things go together. Because as soon as I lose patience, I lose kindness. And why did I lose patience? Because I lost faith and hope. But if I can maintain faith and hope, then I can actually be patient. And if I can be patient, I can continue to be kind. Sometimes I get impatient with my daughter and I holler at her. The other day I was trying to get her to brush her teeth. And I said, baby. Look at me, baby. Come on, look at me. Open your mouth. Open your mouth. She's playing around. and said, baby, open your mouth. Open your mouth. I got to brush your teeth. She's playing around. Open your mouth. Open your mouth. I got to brush your teeth. She's playing around. Open your mouth. Open your mouth! Oh, I'm sorry, baby. <laughs> you know, I just hollered at her. Like, oh, my wife saw, baby, what's that about? I'm like, I'm, so, I'm sorry, baby, I'm sorry. And she went, "Hey!" <laughs> ah, great. I lost patience. And because I lost patience, I lost Kindness. But the scripture says, love is patient. Love is kind. Lydia like said, daddy, you're mean to me. <laughs> you're mean to me. Love is not envious, boastful or proud. You know what envy is? Envy is when you want something that somebody else has. But you can only want something that somebody else has when you're not one with them. If you and I are one, then when God blesses you, he blesses me. I don't have to envy your blessing when I'm connected to you. If one of us gets blessed, all of us got blessed. Envy is when you're praying to God for a thousand dollar provision for something. And the brother next to you gets a check in the mail for a thousand dollars. And you're going, oh, Great. Oh, this is just great. Thanks a lot, God. Yeah, you blessed him. What about me? You know what you just did? You just divided yourself from him. How about saying, wow, thank you, Lord. That's awesome. Look at what God did for us. We're one. God can't bless you. Pastor Daniels was talking about that. and I was in full agreement with him yesterday because I used to fast and pray and cry out to God. And then God would speak to my wife. I mean, I'd be in a room crying out to the Lord, fasting and tears and travail. And my wife would be vacuuming the floor. And all of a sudden, she'd burst in the room. God just spoke to me. This is what the Lord is saying. Like, why'd you tell her? I'm the one praying. Can't you tell me? How many times she'd say, the Lord is saying this. And I said, no, he's not. He's saying this. And then she'd turn out to be right. I said, Lord, why'd you do that to me? Can't I be right once? Man, aren't I supposed to be the head? And then I began to realize that we're one. And because we're one, if the Lord speaks to her, he just spoke to us. I can't say he spoke to her instead of me. He spoke to us. If God speaks to her, he spoke to us. If God speaks to me, he spoke to us. And you know what? In the church, we're one. That means if God speaks to me, he spoke to us. And if God speaks to you, he spoke to us. We possess all things common in the spirit. So there's no division and so there's no envy and there's no competition. Oneness precludes the possibility of competition. I can't be compete because to compete with you, I got to compete with myself. Brings me into conflict with myself. My, My wife and I, when we first got married, I was a real sore loser. We used to play board games and she would beat the tar out of me. And I would just be sulking. We would play checkers and she would beat the tar out of me at checkers. And I would just be sulking. That's why 23-year-olds shouldn't get married. (laughs) I was still a baby, and I didn't know it. Love is not envious. Love rejoices when another member of the body of Christ gets blessed. I rejoice to see you prosper, even if you're prospering in a way that I never have and always long to. You know why? Because I don't know the process that you went through to get to where you are. I don't know what God put you through. Maybe I've only started that process, but you've gone through it. I have no idea. And I have no idea the purpose for which God is prospering you in the time that he's prospering you or the purpose for which he has refrained from prospering me in the time that he has not prospered me. I simply have to rejoice in what God does, recognizing that we're one. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered but there's an always to love you know we said before that you should never use the words never or always actually you should never use the words never or always in a critical context you never do this and you always do that if i'm using it as a form of criticism i should never use it but in love those two words are very important i will never leave you And I will always remain faithful to you. Very important. Love always forgives. That is, it keeps no record of wrongs. No record of wrongs. I remember what you did back in 1991. (laughs) Keeps no record of wrongs. It always protects. I'm not going to allow anything to happen to you. It always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. Love never fails. Do you have fear of failing in any realm of your life, in any relationship? Attack it with faith, hope, and love, and you'll never fail. And here's the thing I realized. Love doesn't mean I'll never make a mistake. I'll make plenty of mistakes. But even in the making of mistakes, I won't fail. You know why? Because love is going to keep me connected to you. It's going to keep me believing that God has made us one. It's going to keep me hoping that whatever happens between us, whatever mistakes, God is going to solve it and work it out. And it's going to keep me moving forward. Love is the way I move toward you in expectation that God is making us one. And love, faith, hope, and love are evangelistic as well, aren't they? Because even when I approach somebody who doesn't know Jesus, I'm approaching them in the faith. Jesus already died on the cross for them. In the hope, God is going to draw you to him. And then I reach out to you in love by which I partner with God's act of drawing you into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm talking to you not as someone who is completely outside of the realm of God's mercy and love, but talking to you as one who is being actively drawn into it by God. I just believe he's drawing you. And I just believe he's, he's making us one. He's making me one with you through faith in Jesus Christ. I don't call you an unbeliever. I call you a pre-believer. You're just on the way. You haven't gotten there yet, but that's okay. Faith, hope, and love. And if we walk in faith, hope, and love, we'll walk in true fellowship with God and with one another. Let's pray. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus that your spirit would rest on this house and that you'd give understanding, that you'd give insight, and that you'd give peace. Father, strengthen our hearts and minds. God, some of us here today... Maybe we're engaged in conflicts, not just with other members of the body, but maybe we're engaged in conflicts in our families, in our marriages, with our children, with our friends, wherever it is. I pray that you would teach us to create true fellowship by attacking conflict with faith, hope, and love. God, if some of us here today are experiencing anxiety or fear in regards to relationships... I just speak peace and comfort to every heart. I say there is no fear in love. The perfect love casts out all fear. God, I pray that you'd perfect us in love. Perfect us in love so that we would not fear. Thank you that you've called us into the fellowship of your son, Jesus Christ. That you're drawing us with cords of compassion. That you're binding us to yourself and to one another with bonds that cannot be broken. Give us the heart and mind to partner with you to strive to maintain the fellowship of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because there's only one body. There's only one faith. There's only one baptism. There's only one Lord. Only one Father. We thank you. We give you all the praise and glory. And I just speak rest, strength, and encouragement over the hearts and minds of your people today. God, I pray that this Thanksgiving holiday would bring about reconciliation in families. I pray that this time, this this time in which we have some time to stop and reflect upon your goodness and give thanks to you, that it would bring about an opportunity to reconnect with some folks that we haven't reconnected with, maybe in fear. Sometimes when we're hurt by someone in fear, we don't reach out to them. But God, that you would overcome that fear. That you would give us boldness. The scripture says that the righteous are as bold as a lion. I pray this week you would make us bold, so bold as to call and to reach out to family members that we haven't talked to in a long time. Say, I just wanted to call and tell you I love you. Wanted to call and say happy Thanksgiving to you. Wanted to call and tell you I was thinking about you. I was praying for you. And I hope we can reconnect. God, I pray that you would use those moments to rekindle the fire of fellowship among us, to restore families. And I thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy your week.